Hello, Pete here. In a change to our scheduled broadcast, this is actually an out-of-office episode whilst Ryan and I are unavoidably detained. So for this episode, we thought we'd try something new. The podcast's changed a fair bit over the last couple of years, so we thought it'd be fun to take one of our more popular early episodes and remaster it, as it were. So this is the same place, the same time and topic as a previous episode, but it does contain new material and is an entirely new recording. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Uh, what are you working on? Oh, I'm working on a script. A script? What for? Well, it's for this sketch, actually. You see, I've been looking at the YouTube stats for our Sex in Vietnam episode, and it's by far our most searched for episode. Oh, that's great. But there's a problem. Most people stop listening to that episode after just a couple of minutes. Really? Why is that? Well, obviously, they've searched for sex, and the beginning of the show just isn't sexy enough, so they've switched off. Oh, right. So I was thinking, if we make our first sketch, super sexy, then they're going to stick around and listen to the rest. Okay. So I've written a script. Right. So let's try it and see what you think. Fine. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Oh, you're looking sexy. No, you're even more sexy. I'm wanting the sex today. I too would like lots of the sex. Yeah, got it. Be good to do the sex. Flipping heck, yeah, God, ooh. I'm so up for it right now. Ryan, Ryan, I have to stop you there. This just isn't going to work. Why not? Well, it's just too sexy. It'll get censored by YouTube and they'll take it down. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, sorry about that, mate. It was a nice try, though. Yeah, no worries. Don't suppose I could get a copy of this, though, can I? History happened everywhere. Out of office. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Out of office. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Adrian Cronauer to my Vietnam War. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello there, Peter. How do you do? I do well. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm enjoying being out of office today. Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Unless we've been arrested, in which case it's less lovely. Wait, what? We may have been arrested. I don't know. We recorded this before it happened. (laughs) I feel like maybe you've got something in the back of your mind. Anyway, so Ryan, do you want to remind us what the place, time and topic we chose for this episode? So we have decided to go back and revisit Sex in Vietnam during 1985 to 1990. That was episode 10. Why did we choose that one? Well, because it was one of my favourites and it was a very early episode and we've sort of evolved the podcast as time has gone on and I've also discovered some new facts and so the combination of all of those things means I'm going to do a full George Lucas and HD this. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm looking forward to it. Well, look, Peter, for this out-of-office special, we are going back to a land of staggering beauty and cultural complexity, a place of dynamic megacities and hill-tribe villages. In this exotic and tantalising world, we'll be getting a taste of what life was like in the late 1980s, when politics shaped the people's lives in both the streets and between the sheets. In this sex-filled episode of HHE, we're going to discover why women went from being on top to a life that sucked. We'll see why a bit on the side was worth a handful of dong, and we'll find out why dum-dums don't use condoms. Come with me, Pete, to the king of the cashews, the land of the blue dragon. Welcome to Vietnam. 
Right, Peter, I suppose you're going to want some background again. I do, I do, because it was a while ago, in fairness. <laughs> Almost two years ago, in fact. Okay, so a little bit of background to Vietnam. Vietnam, officially the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Looking at a map, you're going to want to head east of India, south of China, and northwest from Australia. It's the S-shaped country in the South China Sea that borders China to the north and Laos and Cambodia to the west. At 331,000 square kilometres, that's 128,000 square miles, Vietnam is 1.7 times smaller than France. Oh, yeah. still decent size though. It runs 1,000 miles long from north to south, and its most narrow point is just 30 miles wide. Oh, I like those ribbony kind of countries. Oh yeah, it has a uh, 2,000 mile long coastline, along which you'll find nearly 6,000 islands. Wow. 80% of the country is dense tropical forest forest or mountains, and it is riddled with rivers. Riddled with rivers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 392 in total, covering 7,000 kilometres in length. Sounds like a place that's very conducive to life. Indeed. And if you like life, you're going to probably like water buffalo, otters, crocodiles, monkeys, uh, as well as rarer animals, sometimes like tigers, Asiatic black bears, and Asian elephants. Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh are the two largest cities, with Hanoi being the capital city. Population is around 96 million people, and that's spread across 54 different ethnic groups. Wow, that's a fairly significant population. Oh, it really is. Yeah, uh, the Vietnamese use a lunar calendar, so if you visit in February, prepare to celebrate, because that's when the New Year is. Hooray! Yeah. Vietnam is ranked the fifth happiest nation in the world. Oh, nice. Yeah, despite having one of the world's lowest employment rates and one of the world's lowest wages. Cashew nuts, black pepper, coffee and rice are the main exports, Buddhism is the religion, Dong the currency, and the lotus the national flower. The flag is red with a gold star in the middle, the red representing the blood of the people who sacrificed their lives for the freedom of Vietnam, and the gold star represents the five societal classes, intellectuals, farmers, workers, youth, and military personnel. And podcasters not featuring there? Not quite, no. <laughs> the national anthem, Pete. Oh, yes. You love a national anthem, don't sure you? do. Well, this one was adopted in 1976, and it sounds a little something like this. Pretty classic anthem. I love the snare. Of all the drums, the snare is my favourite. You must love a lot of the national anthems. That sort of rolling snare is quite common, isn't it? It's like a snake. It's dramatic, isn't it? It is. All right. Very nice. There you go. Vietnam facts! (laughs) (laughs) Right, Peter. Snake wine is a traditional drink. I'm, I'm intrigued, excited and scared and excited again. <laughs> <laughs> it's made from rice wine. Yes. It's made from herbs. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's got snakes in it. I was hoping you'd get to that. <laughs> <laughs> it can have poison in it, though. Oh. So it should only be drunk in small amounts. That's one way to limit your drinking, I suppose. Yeah. Have, you, have you drunk too much? Yes, because I'm dead. Now, you know me and you love to do a traditional drink. We do. (laughs) You're literally trying to poison me. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, you can't get it in this country. Oh, no. you've missed out. (laughs) Oh, such a shame. (laughs) I tried to make it with some worms and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Did I just put rat poison in? Does that count? (laughs) But what I then discovered is that beer is the most 
popular drink of Vietnam, and especially one called Saigon beer. Three billion litres of beer are drunk annually. There is no legal drinking age in Vietnam. And beer is a bargain, Pete. It's only 20 cents or 20 pence for us a glass. Nice. Uh, Anyway, I've got to go. I've got to go to Vietnam immediately. (laughs) Well, you don't have to, Pete, because I have some Saigon beer here. Nice. Imported just for us. Is it snake beer? It's not. It's just (laughs) Saigon beer. All right. Hold the phone. Okay, we have uh, this bottled beer. It's a nice red, um, largely red label called Beer. I guess Beer is Vietnamese for beer. Uh, B-I-A in this case. Beer Saigon. Export. That's all it says. <laughs> all right, let's open them up, see how they go. Okay. Nice, pleasing mm. hiss as you open it. Yeah. All right. To Vietnam. To Vietnam. Cheers. Oh, that's very refreshing. That's lovely. Beer Saigon. Two thumbs up. Oh, I really like that. Which is a good job, because I have about 16 of them in my fridge. <laughs> Can't import them individually, so we have a lot of beer. Oh, no. <laughs> I suppose you're going to probably want to know some history. I'd love some history. All the history, please. Okay. Well, let's start 500,000 years ago. That seems like it will encompass all the history. Yeah. Guess who's living there? Early man? Early man is there. He's always there. And where is he living? In a cave. He's living in caves. (laughs) (laughs) I know this history. (laughs) And what's he doing? He's basically leaving tooth fragments for archaeologists to find. By 2879 BCE, so nearly 5,000 years ago, various tribes start to get together and unite. And the Hongbang dynasty is formed. The Hongbang rule for around 2,500 years. Solid. During which time, irrigation is introduced, rice is cultivated, and bronze metal becomes popular. Around 700 BCE, an influx of Chinese people arrive. 400 years later, in 300 BCE, Buddhism arrives. The Hongbang dynasty ends in 157 BCE, and the Thuk dynasty starts. But that lasts for only about 40 years, because in 111 BCE, China's Han dynasty absorbs Vietnam into their empire. The Chinese dominate Vietnam for the next 600 years, until 544, when a successful revolt against the Chinese results in Lim Nam Day becoming the first Vietnamese emperor. Sixty years later, the Chinese conquer Vietnam again, and they remain in place for 400 years, when in 938, another rebellion kicks them out again. A succession of Vietnamese dynasties rule over the next 400 years, each successfully sort of fending off various attacks by the Chinese and, indeed, Mongol invaders. In 1516, we get our first contact with Europeans. Hooray! (laughs) Everyone enjoys that, and it's good for everyone. It is indeed. Who's the first to get there, Pete? Is it the Portuguese? It is indeed the Portuguese. (laughs) Oh, those guys! That's right. Portuguese adventurers. They arrive by sea, followed swiftly by all the other Europeans. That is how it goes as a rule, isn't it? (laughs) It is indeed. So, 300 years later, in 1802, the Huen dynasty takes control, and Vietnam becomes known as Vietnam. Now, this became the last ruling family of Vietnam, because 50 years later, in 1858, under the direction of Napoleon III, France attacks, wins, and makes Vietnam a French colony. The French fail in their promises to improve medical care, education, and transport, but they did succeed, Pete, in creating a hierarchy of wealthy landlords and poverty-stricken peasants. Phew! That's the Western way! (laughs) Inevitably, a national resistance movement forms, and in the early 20th century, mass demonstrations take place. 
The French, of course, stamped down on this, and by 1925, those protests have gone quiet. Except for one man, otherwise known as Ho Chi Minh, he forms the Communist Party of Vietnam, and he stages another peasant uprising. This uprising, though, Pete, is bloody. Many officials, wealthy landlords are killed, and whilst the French eventually suppress this, it's just in time for World War II to begin. And during this time, Japan invades Vietnam. So, as that war ends, France occupies just the southern part of Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh sees this as an opportunity to seize control of the northern Vietnam and declare independence. The north and the south now go to war. Terrified that Minh might win and spread communism across the country, the United States decide to get involved, and they lend their support to the French. Peace negotiations between the two fall apart. North Vietnam gains the upper hand through this guerrilla campaign. France is shaken, and in May 1954, they agree to negotiate peace, which sees the country remain in two parts, with a communist north and a capitalist south. Now, that peace lasts just four years, when in 1959, Ho Chi Minh attacks the South in an effort of unification. In 1965, US troops arrive to support the South, and the Vietnam War begins. The US conduct three years of intensive bombing in the North, but the Viet Cong hold out until finally the United States makes the political decision to withdraw and leave. The North and South continue to fight until 1975, in fact, when southern Vietnam surrenders. The country is finally unified and the southern city of Saigon is renamed Ho Chi Minh City. The war had lasted 15 years and it had resulted in the deaths of around 4 million people. 300,000 southern collaborators were rounded up, sent to re-education camps, and having failed in their mission to prevent the spread of communism, the United States decides to levy a trade embargo on Vietnam, basically cutting it off economically from much of the world. Vietnam quickly becomes one of the world's poorest countries. So, the Vietnamese government sets out a five-year plan, which involves the nationalisation of all businesses. Rice production, agriculture, factories, they all now become state-owned. Goods are prevented from being put up for sale. Cash is replaced by food stamps and vouchers. Farmers and fishermen are forced to now sell their goods to the government only and at low prices. This devastates the economy, and with nothing to sell and little to spend, two and a half million people flee the country. Unfortunately, in trying to escape, many are drowned, robbed, raped, and even murdered. Vietnam at this stage is looking pretty weak, and this gives the Cambodian government, under Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, the opportunity to make a land grab. So in 1978, the Cambodian army raids several Vietnamese villages, and they slaughter the inhabitants. But despite appearances, Vietnam was still well positioned to defend itself. It boasted the fourth largest army in the world. So they invade Cambodia and they remove the government from power. China freaks out over this, and that leads to several incursions from them into northern Vietnam as well. Now, this is a problem because the cost of stationing troops in Cambodia and defending themselves against the Chinese was huge. So the Vietnamese asked the Soviet Union. And that's interesting that Soviet Union and China, because communist China, presumably at this point. So you would have thought they would have been acting in some sort of unison, but I hadn't realized that. Yeah. And they did help. They gave them around about $3 billion. That is help. It is indeed. <laughs> I might ask them for help myself. But it wasn't enough. Unifying the North and the South into a socialist economy proved way too difficult. And by 1982, it was decided that the current government had, in quotes, utterly failed to improve the people's living standards, check corruption, or instill a more flexible, non-dogmatic outlook on life. 
So, changes were needed. The Communist Party, as it was, was purged, and a new government is formed. They withdraw from Cambodia, they slash their spending, and they begin a new capitalist approach that allows Vietnamese citizens to once again open and own private businesses. In 1992, a new constitution allowed for even more economic freedoms, and this drew the attention of the United States, who lifted that trade embargo we spoke about earlier, and that restored diplomatic relations. Today, nearly 50 years since the end of the Vietnam War, and more than a quarter century since the normalisation of US-Vietnam relations, Vietnam is now a rising power. Once considered one of the world's poorest and most isolated countries, Vietnam is now a middle-income country with a dynamic young population and a promising future, predicted by many financial analysts to become one of the largest economies in the 21st century. I've always had a soft spot for Vietnam, I must admit. It's one of those places I often fancy relocating to. Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, one of the 11 countries that are anticipated to be the big powerhouse countries of the future. Oh, I'm not a powerhouse person, though. (laughs) I may not fit in as well as I thought. I'm sure there'll be some remote village that you can be a pauper in, don't worry. Okay, good. It must be a village in need of an idiot somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Side note, the first president of Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh, he died 40 years ago, but he still travels 8,000 miles every year. Good guy for a dead guy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Reason for that is his body is on display at the Ho Chi Minh Mausoleum in Hanoi, but apparently he travels to Moscow every year for maintenance. For maintenance? I thought you were (laughs) going to say for a meeting that just couldn't get out of the diary. (laughs) No. uh, Apparently he wished to be cremated, but people went, nah, let's keep him around. Well, I I was worried you'd say something like he's been stuffed and put on roller skates and tours of the country on an ongoing (laughs) basis, so it could be worse. That could be worse. Welcome to Russian Rail, non-stop from Hanoi to Moscow. Please have tickets ready for inspection and enjoy your journey. Tickets, please. Oh, hello. Tickets. Here you go. This is just one. Yes, that's right. But what about him? Oh, don't you know who that is? That's Ho Chi Minh. Well, I don't care who he is. Still needs ticket. But he's luggage. No, he's passenger. No, 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 he's luggage. Look, he's got a handle. That is his arm. You're pointing at his arm. Well, that's how I pick him up. Well, if he's luggage, he'll have to go in luggage rack. I can't put him in there, he's fragile. If luggage, he go in luggage rack. If in seat, he needs ticket. Oh, come on. He's the rules. Fine. How much is it? 1,000 rubles. How much? Well, can I get a discount? What for? Because he's dead. No discounts for dead. Well... How about if I take his legs off? Half off? No. Can I get a senior's discount then? How old is he? Oh, uh, okay. uh, 132. Well, I shouldn't, but okay. That's 800 rubles. But don't tell anyone I did this. Oh, don't worry. Dead men tells no tales. <laughs> So, Pete. Yes, Ryan. What do we mean when we talk about sex? For me, it's uh, something that uh, you're not allowed to watch on telly if your mum's in the room. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Other people consider it getting lucky, getting laid, doing the deed, making whoopee, bumping uglies, shaking the sheets, doing the nasty, playing hide the sausage, making the beast with two backs. Knocking boots. Is there another 45 minutes of this? I suspect this could be endless. A bit of how's your father? (laughs) Tossing a hot dog down the hallway. Oh my lord. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
sexual intercourse. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but sex doesn't just mean intercourse, right? It can mean different things to different people. It can mean enjoying and indulging in an intimate session with a partner. It can be about procreation. It can mean self-pleasure. In fact, the traditional view of sex, meaning a penis penetrating a vagina, is not how sexual experiences are described today. There is a spectrum of people with a diversity of gender identities and sexual orientations, kinks and urges, meaning that the word sex now carries a different meaning. In fact, it's best described as a consensual act involving genital contact between one or more people for the purposes of pleasure. Oh, that's broadened it right out. Yeah. And the key word, of course, in that description is consensual because sex isn't sex without consent. <laughs> for those people that need to hear it. <laughs> so there are lots of ways to have sex, Pete. There's masturbation. There's contact through clothes. There's even over-the-phone sex. But the word sex is also used to describe the categorization of living beings, traditionally as either male or female. But much in the same way that the traditional view of sexual intercourse or sexual experiences has been challenged, this sort of binary categorization of male and female based on what's between your legs has changed. We now know that the chromosomal markers, which once helped identify sex, are not always clear-cut. And physically, of course, some babies are born with genitalia that cannot easily be categorized as one or the other. And it gets more complicated because sex is different to gender, which is a term that describes how a person identifies, rather than the sex with which they were born. For example, someone born as a male might identify as a female, or any number of variations across a broad spectrum. Point is, the word sex covers a lot of ground, but in today's episode we're going to be looking at sex in Vietnam pretty generally. Culturally, the Vietnamese have tended to lean into a more traditional view of sex, so much of the research I've discovered reflects that binary view of the sexes as being male and female, with sexual activity relegated to sort of matters between a husband and a wife. So Pete, take off your trousers, prepare to dive in as we go under the covers to tickle out some orgasmic facts. Just my over trousers or my under trousers as well. <laughs> both okay and just leave the pants and the underpants <laughs> definitely <laughs> and let's get started with some vietnamese sex facts vietnamese sex facts i yeah. feel like that could be a podcast series all on its own <laughs> yeah okay let's go back in time okay old vietnamese coins they used to picture couples making love oh really yeah and as by way of suggestions or <laughs> i guess <laughs> help so. people out yeah like the karma suturing coins it brings a new idea to what should we do tonight let's flip a coin <laughs> <laughs> it does that's a great idea yeah well they believed that the prosperity of the nation was tied to the happiness of its people and well sex made people happy I see. Yeah. I mean, that is the ultimate combination of money and sex, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. You combine that with power somehow and you've got the whole, whole trinity. <laughs> uh, according to recent surveys, Vietnamese women have an average bra cup size of A. Who's been conducting this research, Ryan? I went out recently and conducted <laughs> research. 52% uh, of Vietnamese women have an A cup I see. in their bra. Uh, Vietnamese men, however, have an average erect penis length of 5.7 inches. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of penises, Pete. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there is a growing fashion for Vietnamese men to undergo surgery on their penis, uh, but not 
as you might expect, for extensions. There is instead... It's a shape-changing thing. A new fashion... <laughs> a balloon animal. <laughs> there is instead a trend for having small metal balls inserted under the skin. Ah. Usually two or three, but sometimes up to ten, because apparently it creates pleasure for women. Well, it's nice that they're thinking about their partners. Indeed. I is agree. there a Newton's cradle under there? <laughs> yeah. uh, Vietnamese like to use flowery, euphemistic vocabulary when they speak about sex, because it helps them feel less embarrassed. So a man having sexual desires might say, I'm going to buy a tree. <laughs> <laughs> a white rice flour cake means a virgin. The pulpy interior of a breadfruit with sticky juice. <laughs> I mean, you don't really need to complete that one, but go on. Refers to a vagina. Okay. <laughs> 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 Scooping water in a rice field and sucking on a honey flumbade banana <laughs> both refer to sex acts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you could work those ones out. And talking of sex acts, the words sex position is the most viewed article in the Vietnamese version of Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) And the most preferred position for sexual intercourse among traditional Vietnamese partners is lying face to face or side by side. And the reason for that is because a lot of Vietnamese beds are made using bamboo slates that apparently might cause you to scrape your skin off if you start moving around into different positions. Oh, I see. Oh, crumbs. Yeah. The women of Ha Dong are... Su- Sorry, the women of where? <laughs> ha Dong. <laughs> okay, keep going. Yeah, <laughs> stick with me. <laughs> they are such fierce wives that they are known as the Hardong Lionesses. <laughs> and their husbands are said to belong to an ancient club called the Society of Men who Fear Their Wives. Uh, are they accepting applications? <laughs> Welcome to tonight's meeting of the Society of Men Who Fear Their Wives. First item, I'd like to introduce Tran Wen, who's joining the group today. Hello, my name is Tran and uh, I, I, uh, I fear my wife. Hello, Tran. Hello, Tran. Hello, Tran. Second point of order, I'd like to congratulate Tu Wan, who celebrates one year of not fearing his wife. <laughs> Congratulations, Tu Wan. Nice one. Great work. Now, let's dive into the affirmation, shall we? Okay, repeat after me. I am a strong, independent man. I am a strong, independent man. I need not fear my wife. I need not fear my wife. I am a strong, independent man. I am a strong, independent man. I need not... Is that someone's phone? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's mine. Uh, it's, it's her. No. Oh, this is what we're in there. I, uh, God, I, I think I should get this. this no, no, don't, don't do it. Stay strong, brother. Don't do it, my friend. We'll hang out. We'll all be affirmation. No, seriously, guys, I I should get this. No, don't do it. Don't do it. You should do it. Oh. I, I, I should probably get going. Yeah, I think I should go too. Oh, is that Guys, guys, the affirmation. Oh, see you next week. But enough facts and figures it and was. stats. <laughs> it really was enough. Well, enough. It was, was enough. too much for you. <laughs> so I'm, I need to fan myself. Yeah, you've, got, you've blushed. Um, you've gone rouge. Probably the beer. Yeah, probably. So anyway, Pete, as we discussed in the history section, by the mid-1980s, Vietnam was in trouble. 
the old Soviet model for development just hadn't worked. Uh, international sanctions were restricting their ability to generate any meaningful income. Relationships with the Chinese was tense. They were keeping troops in Cambodia, which was proving costly. And that financial assistance from the Soviets was starting to dry up. Economic hardship was being felt by all. Now, this put the Vietnamese officials in a difficult bind, and they realised there was no choice but to rethink their approach. And this resulted in a thing called doi moi. Now, this is a policy which focused on the removal of barriers to progress. And what did that mean? Well, it means reducing the amount being paid in subsidies to state-owned enterprises. It means liberalising the domestic market by allowing companies to be private again. And it encouraged foreign investment. Now, Doimoy was radical, but it kind of worked. From a country that was close to poverty in 1980, by the end of the decade, they had a booming economy. Foreign companies like Nike, FedEx and Coca-Cola, they had all set up shop and they had started to become a major exporter of rice. And as a result, financial growth was rocketing. But Doimoy had some unexpected side effects too. And one of the major changes was on the approach to traditional marriage. There's always unexpected side effects. <laughs> if we've learned anything, it's uh, nothing goes quite as planned in anything ever. <laughs> I mean, honestly, trying to run a country. Just imagine how hard it is. Ugh. What happens if I pull this lever? Oh, Don't that's gone that wrong. Lever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So look, Vietnam has always been an intensely family oriented society, especially in the countryside where three generations would often live under the same roof. For females, their role was clearly defined as being about marriage and children. Finding a partner was relatively simple, especially in the remote and small villages where options were limited. In fact, villages in very remote areas would often coordinate love markets where young local people uh, would come together and try and find a mate. And it's believed that these love markets were actually the inspiration for the concept of speed dating. Ah. Yeah, where a group of men and women are sort of rotated in a series of three to five minute dates. Just going down a love market, yeah. pick up half a pound of love. <laughs> <laughs> we used to call it a meat market. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was something slightly different. <laughs> Girls were expected to remain virgins until marriage, which would happen pretty quickly after a you know, brief courtship. Newly wedded wives were then expected to have children. Point is, having and raising children was tied to how a woman was seen and respected by her family and the community. That's fairly typical, isn't it? I would say so. Now, when the communist regime took over, they sort of shifted away from that traditional view of women as being mothers and wives with a couple of policies that focused on greater equality. Their first constitution in 1949 stated that women are equal to men in all respects. Wild, crazy idea. And that state and society shall see to the heightening of women's level in all spheres, political, cultural, scientific, technical and professional. So this is a big step away from where they were. And when in 1959, a marriage and family law was drafted, which overhauled the marriage system entirely, women suddenly found themselves protected from being considered lower status than men. Ho Chi Minh called the marriage and family law an integral part of the socialist revolution, saying this law aims at the emancipation of women. It is necessary to liberate women. Couldn't agree more. Right. I find myself agreeing with a the communist. There we go. <laughs> So a woman's union was formed, which advocated for women's rights. Suddenly, women were receiving equal pay for equal work. And 
the, they also had even the availability of maternity leave. By 1962, the total number of marriages fell by 20%. Wow. Yeah. Women were going to work, which they did in great numbers. They formed a considerable part of the agricultural and industrial labor force. And these numbers kept on growing even more, especially during the war against the Americans, where all the men were being conscripted to fight in the military. In fact, by 1967, women represented at least 35% of all jobs, including education, medicine and politics. There was a limit, of course. <laughs> we can't entirely have full equality. <laughs> and so men continued to retain leadership roles, uh, with fewer than just 10% of villages having a female president, director or doctor. But when the war ended, things started to change. Men returned home in huge numbers and there were no jobs for them. So the government made a reversal in its policy and the number of employed women dropped. Things slowly reverted back to the way they had been, with societal pressure returning for women to be at home. And this only got worse when, in the 1980s, the situation intensified and any attempt at gender equality was forgotten. Because under Doi Moi, the country's new government implemented policies which put the household at the centre of a plan to help drive the economy. This meant that families became fundamental in their efforts to rebuild the country. In particular, two policies were introduced in 1986. One, the marriage and family law, in which they said that a woman's identity must be tied to being a mother. Wow. And two, the Happy Family campaign, a policy that linked efforts to modernise the nation with happy, wealthy, harmonious and stable families. Put simply, the government wanted their people to have sex and make lots of babies. Yes, I feel this is future workforce planning rather than happiness of the people planning, but there you go. Absolutely right. So women no longer really had a choice. They had to find a partner or else they faced being ostracised. This proved hard, um, especially for those living in the cities. And so the government made efforts to help couples out. In particular, they encouraged the use of public parks as venues for socialising. In Hanoi, one tree-lined boulevard called Than Nin, meaning young people, became a famous lover's lane with couples meeting at night to kiss and cuddle. Aww. They would arrive at night, sit on their motorbikes with their backs to the road and canoodle with each other. And the exact address, if uh, just for the record? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, others would sit under trees and others would hire swan-shaped paddle boats to get some alone time together out on the water. The government also provided mood lighting, with streetlights being turned off at 8pm and not turned on again until midnight. Nice. I also <laughs> yeah. love the idea of a state-sanctioned Barry White walking through crooning across the park. <laughs> uh, and it worked, because between 1985 to 1990, our time period, there was a surge in pregnancies, with two million babies born. That's a rate of a thousand births a day. That's a 2% rise in population every year. Wow. Now, you'd think that this would make the government happy, right? But it was actually the opposite. With women averaging four babies each, the government saw another problem. Population numbers were now getting out of control and the economy was unable to support that growth. So, pivoting, <laughs> they created a new directive. <laughs> what did this other leave with? <laughs> which called for a maximum of one or two children per couple. Hello, sir. Welcome to my shop. How can I help you? 
I am from the government, and I'm here to help you. Oh, that's nice. Tell me, how much is this apple? Oh, that's three dong, sir. Wrong. What? That's too much. It's one dong from now on. What? How can that be? And how much for a can of cola? Oh, them. They're hard to get hold of, so they're ten dong, sir. Wrong. What? You don't sell these anymore. We don't sell imported goods. But I... How much are these fish sticks? Well, the fish sticks, they're twelve dong? Wrong. What? These will be bought with food stamps. But this is ridiculous. How am I going to raise my four children? Wrong. What? Three children. Three Three children? Wrong. Two children? Acceptable. Right, I'm going to take all this. Now, no complaining, or I'll come back and help you again. So this was effective in limiting overpopulation, but the policy had unintentional consequences. Because of the war, when there were so many deaths of young men, there were suddenly now about 90 young adult males to every 100 females. Now, that's a problem because that creates an imbalance in the marriage market. Women are now essentially underrepresented and the most socially vulnerable, and they're being told to get married and have kids, but they have less choice in who they're doing that with. So essentially, somewhere in Lover's Park, there's one woman going, guys? guys. Hello? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that woman is then being forced into a marriage, potentially with people that they don't want to be with. So someone who's undesirable or even abusive. And of course, even if they did stay with that person, then they can't leave because getting divorced was not really an option. Men, on the other hand, had it slightly different. One, there was a surplus of women to pick from. Two, they had a wide range of jobs available to them. And three, they had a government telling them that they were the most respected sex. And so, with this societal importance of males growing stronger, the preference for male babies becomes essential. Which is fine when women are averaging four children, because the odds are in their favour. But with the introduction of the one or two children law, the odds of having a male child plummeted. So panic kicked in. Parents tried to sort of increase the odds themselves. Books were being published which described various chemical and dietary preparations which were thought to increase the likelihood of conceiving a male. Newspapers advertised prenatal sex testing equipment. Hospitals were flooded with pregnant couples looking for ultrasound and other prenatal tests to help them determine the sex of their fetus. And of course, abort any that weren't male. I feel the pendulum is about to swing back in a big way. <laughs> and as a consequence, the mortality of infant females skyrocketed. Now I'm going to take a little side note here and I'm going to tell you the story of Wen Kiun. This is a woman who navigated this difficult time period and she came out with a head held high. Born in 1969, Un took up swimming at the age of five, and she showed incredible talent. By age 10, she had been spotted as a potential talent and had been asked to join the Ho Chi Minh City swim team. Two years later, age 12, she breaks two national championship youth records. But just as her talent is blooming, her family decides they're going to up and leave Vietnam for the United States. Now, Un loved her home, and she wanted to pursue swimming, so she begged her family to stay. Fortunately, the family agreed, so they cancelled their plans to migrate, and she continued to swim. By 1983, Un was 16 years old and recognised as the best swimmer in Ho Chi Minh City. And her phrase, getting into the water is golden, became the swim team's motto. In 1985, aged 18, she entered into a relationship with Do Trong Tin, the swimming coach who had trained her since she was 13 years old. 
There was a 14-year age difference between them, but Tin said that he felt his heart had unusual beats towards his student, and he had been happy to keep that a secret until she turned 18. People didn't approve of that relationship. They said that the age difference was too great. They criticised Tin for immorality in pursuing such a young girl. Even their two families publicly objected to the relationship, with Tin receiving threats to bang him straight. But their love persisted, and they soon became known as the most beautiful couple in the swimming village. At the first National Sports Congress in 1990, Un won 14 gold medals, and she set five national records. During 1980 to 1995, she broke the national swimming record more than 60 times. She represented Vietnam in two World Olympic Games, Seoul in 1988 and Barcelona in 1992. Uh, She said, When I got to the finish line, I didn't have time to relax, but hurriedly ran back to the new starting point to prepare. (laughs) At the last few distances, I was very tired, but I tried my best and I still finished first. Well, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, she was so good that the sports industry amended the rules of their swimming competitions, limiting each athlete to a maximum of three individual events. In her last tournament in 1995, she won all three gold medals. She retired soon after this with a career boasting 26 national championships. This is a feat unparalleled across any sport in Vietnam. In 1997, she married Tin and they had two sons. And in retirement, she coached the Ho Chi Minh City youth swimming team. She became the deputy director for the uh, local aquatic centre and became a representative of the trade union. She gained a first in a doctoral programme at the University of Sports and Physical Education of Ho Chi Minh City. She studied English and graduated with a bachelor's degree. She represented Ho Chi Minh City as the lead athlete in a golden generation tour of Australia, which led to her joining a swimming coach training programme there, after which she was awarded a degree as a swimming coach. And back in Ho Chi Minh City, she received a master's degree in sport and physical education. Oh, and just a few months later, she studied politics and gained a PhD. Yeah, but I've watched all of Game of Thrones, so we've all achieved things. (laughs) A remarkable woman. Um, She says her success is due to the support of her family, friends and colleagues, but especially her husband. Nice. Oh, that's a great story. And they're all set now for the women's 400 metre freestyle final. That's right. Ledette in one, Boyle in two, Freeze in three and the favourite Kiyun in four. So this is the biggest moment for Vietnamese swimming in who knows how long. It certainly is. Wen Kiyun in lane number four, defending champion, national record holder. She has the lot. And you can tell she wants this so much. Yes, indeed. Kiyun, of course, has broken two national youth champion records at the age of 12 and has broken national records 60 times. And she's been having a blinder of a swim this tournament. And, of course, she has proven that she can pick up a brick from the bottom of the pool in her pyjamas. And I've heard she can do two whips underwater, although I have not seen that with my own eyes. Well, most people agree she is a remarkable performer who can not only do a handstand in the shallow end, but she even refuses to use a float or armbands. And what's more, she can do that underwater twizzly thing to turn around at the end. And look at her go. She is clearly out in front here as they reach the final lap. And and there it is. She has one home in first place. But wait, wait, wait. What's this? There's, there's a commotion poolside. Oh, the judges are signalling, and and oh my goodness, that is a disqualification. Oh, that's incredible news. We're, we're going to get the reason. It's coming in now. It's heavy petting. She's been disqualified for heavy petting. Well, that is a clear breach of pool guidelines and a disaster for Vietnamese swimming. 
So, Peter. Yes, Ryan. Recap time! Yes, recap, please. Okay. During communism, women have equality and are encouraged to be more useful in their society and just produce babies. Post-war, women are told that the sake of their nation rests on their social status to stay at home as mothers and wives. Romance is encouraged. Babies start being born. Men experience a growth in social respectability, shifting the priority of parents to having male babies. Too many babies are being born. The government freaks out. They establish a policy to limit the number of kids being born to one or two. Got it. Okay, so the threat of overpopulation wasn't just limited to the Vietnamese government. Internationally, there was a rising threat of overpopulation in high-growth, low-resource countries that didn't have their own means to produce contraceptives. Countries like China, Laos, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Vietnam. A global non-government organization was created called the Programme for Introduction and Adaptation of Contraceptive Technology, otherwise known as PIACT. PIACT. Sure, or PIACT. Feel like they could have done better. (laughs) (laughs) And they had a mission of promoting local production of contraceptives in developing countries by sharing and transferring technology. Margaret Morrow, the first full-time PIACT, employee, she took responsibility for this multi-country project and began negotiations with various governments to assess the feasibility of setting up local factories to produce condoms. The Vietnamese government agreed to the proposal, but they stressed that any American influence would not be welcome. Scars. Indeed. So, Mrs. Morrow hires a young British citizen called Dr. Michael Free to help her. His first assignment was to travel to Vietnam and explore the feasibility of setting up a condom factory. So in 1980, Michael travels to Vietnam. I spoke with Michael about his time there, and uh, he gave me his first impressions. As I flew into Hanoi, I was struck by a few things. The city was surrounded by pockmarks, shell holes from the war, which contrasted with the fact that the city itself was not broken down. The city was dark at night, and the Chinese were messing around on the border, so there was some fear. There were a few things that did not remain upright. Ho Chi Minh Bridge was still being used, but it leaned to one side, and all the traffic had to move to the other side while they tried to straighten it out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Vietnamese were very interesting and friendly people, not brooding over their losses after the war. They were getting on with life, and change was happening almost in front of your eyes. By the time they decided to go to a market-like economy, the culture had already adapted changed, adjusted, and was ready for a whole new era. So Michael met a ready-picked team set aside by the government, a young team of engineers that knew nothing about condom production. But he said that manufacturing condoms isn't rocket science, and so the basics were grasped pretty quickly. Together, the team met with rubber farmers in southern Vietnam, and they conducted a survey of the quality of local latex. Now, perhaps because of his British citizenship, he says that he was given a warm welcome by local business owners, and he came away impressed with their level of foresight and dedication. Now, to achieve the transfer of manufacturing technology, Michael's team travelled to India, where they worked with the London Rubber Company. This is the company behind the Durex brand, I'm sure you're familiar with. I am. <laughs> oh, the shops. really? <laughs> Um, And now the London Rubber Company had the technology and the experience to design, produce and supply dipped latex rubber condoms. Now, over a period of three years, Michael and his team brought London Rubber Company technology back to Ho Chi Minh City. They set up a factory there, the technology was deployed, and condoms started to be mass-produced. Now, I couldn't find any info on the numbers of condoms that were produced. A fair few, one would expect. Yeah, but Michael says that the factory continued to make condoms for at least 10 years or so. The point was that they were making condoms and doing it in a way that proved self-sufficiency to the government. It was morale-building, you know, for the country, and that has a lasting effect. 
Dr. Free says that he enjoyed his adventure in Vietnam and subsequently went on to do similar work in China, Cuba, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And worth pointing out, in 2011, Dr. Free was named an Officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE, in recognition of his achievements in improving global health and his dedication to increasing the availability of health technologies designed for resource-poor settings. I mean, to be officially recognised for improving global health, that's quite the, quite the achievement, isn't it's it? It's remarkable. It well done, is. Doctor. We'll be getting our OBE soon for our services to podcasting, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep hitting refresh on my inbox, but <laughs> nothing, nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now, Pete, with condoms being manufactured in the country, in the late 1980s, the Vietnamese government starts an aggressive family planning promotion, right? Enabling two channels for the distribution of those condoms. One, free condoms that are available through the public health sector. And two, the sale of condoms through private pharmacies and roadside stalls. People are obviously keen to receive the free condoms um, from the public (laughs) health, uh, but they often had to travel a long distance to reach a medical centre. And when they even got there, they would have no preference in the type uh, or the make of condom available to them. And if that wasn't even an issue, there was still the requirement where they had to register their name before they were handed over. Oh, yeah. Not many people like doing that. So most people chose to go through the private sector where the quality varied. There were limited brands available to choose from and they were expensive. All of which meant that very few condoms were actually being used. Which created another problem. Because in the late 1980s, the world was facing a threat of sexually transmitted disease through unprotected sex. If I may quote the former US President Donald Trump as saying, He avoided an STD in the 1980s because it was dangerous and scary. He said it was my personal Vietnam. I feel like a great and very brave soldier. Oh, you are brave little soldier, Mr. Trump. (laughs) And in Vietnam, unprotected sex was starting to put people at risk of contracting HIV, a condition which causes the immune system to shut down and prevent the body from fighting off infections and disease, ultimately leading to death. The first reported case in Vietnam wasn't actually recorded until 1990, at the end of our time period, but that was likely just the tip of the iceberg, because the first case was only found out when testing first started. As testing becomes more commonplace, cases were being reported across all 61 provinces in Vietnam, with the number of infected rising every year, to its highest numbers of 230,000 in a single year. Condoms might have helped stem the rise in HIV, but with only 45% of the population using them sporadically in 1988, the problem was only going to get worse. And one of the biggest contributing factors to the rise in HIV infections was the growth of the sex industry. Okay, so as we've discussed, by 1985, social transformation has given men the upper hand. They have greater opportunities for employment and their social standing has been elevated. Better yet, the awakening of capitalism in the country has started to put money in their pockets. So much so that by 1986, the overall standard of living had doubled. Foreign investment in the country had brought an abundance of consumer items such as VHS players, foreign films, things that had not been available on a large scale a decade before. And access to that Western media gave Vietnamese men new images to aspire towards. New ideas of marriage, love, romance, sexual intimacy, and of course, sexual experiences. Now, the male attitude towards life had shifted and nowhere more 
than in the bedroom. Because while extramarital sex did happen prior to doimoi, it became much more frequent afterwards, especially with sex workers. Like in much of the world, prostitution has been part of Vietnamese life for as long as there has been people living there. Statues date back hundreds of years depicting female prostitution. Sex workers were considered entertainers. Higher-end prostitutes enjoyed a reputation of prestige. A story called The Tale of Q, written by Huen Du in the 19th century, tells the story of Thu Khoi, who was forced into prostitution by her husband, who became highly sought after for her singing, courtship, and artistic talents. Traditional values meant that sex with prostitutes was frowned upon, but it was sort of otherwise generally accepted. During the colonial years, the French laissez-faire attitude towards sex work meant that prostitution became more accepted. In fact, being made legal in 1888, when the Hanoi Municipal Council passed legislation to regulate it. Brothels called Maisons de Tolerance were built where sex workers would register, get medical examinations, and let civilised men enjoy life without the threat of syphilis. So as colonial life moved from military to family life, prostitution diminished until by 1954 it was said that prostitution was non-existent. That wasn't true. <laughs> uh, the introduction of American servicemen during the Vietnam War caused the sex industry to boom again, with the number of prostitutes rising from approximately 40,000 to 300,000. Wow, it's a notoriously difficult thing to measure, isn't it? Hello, are you a prostitute? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> and this had an unexpected side effect. Oh no, I yeah. pulled the reliever again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, liaisons between US soldiers and Vietnamese prostitutes resulted in the birth of approximately 50 thousand mixed-race children, known as Amerasians. Considered outsiders in Vietnamese society, life was going to be difficult for these children. They were shunned by their community and became known as Bu Doi, or dust of life. Hmm, that's a bit off colour. A decade later, in 1987, the United States Congress drafted the Amerasian Homecoming Act, which allowed for Vietnamese Americans to obtain a US visa based just on their appearance alone. The Act was implemented in 1989, and approximately 23,000 Amerasians became American citizens. In terms of prostitution, post-war, the communist government tried to close all the brothels and even sent 14,000 prostitutes to re-education centres to complete sentences of up to 10 years hard labour. I was going to say, that re-education is not like college, is it? This is a Definitely harsher not. version. Yeah. By 1985, it was said that prostitution had been eradicated, but this was untrue because across the country, sex work remained. Poverty under the communist regime and family conflicts such as abuse at the hands of husbands resulted in some women, especially those in rural areas, seeking to find work for themselves. And so by 1985, there was an estimated 1,000 brothels and 40,000 prostitutes across Vietnam. On average, these women were having 40 or 50 sexual transactions every month. Street hookers, Blowjob girls and massage girls were becoming increasingly available. Many of the prostitutes worked from bars, where home-brewed beer was sold for as little as 15 cents. Uh, the men who visited the bars were known as kaklang choi, clients basically, and would drink beer and negotiate sex with the serving girls. New establishments started to pop up all over Vietnam, with entrepreneurs making businesses geared to providing private spaces for clients to eat, drink, and enjoy the services of their sex workers. In fact, sex didn't even need to be sought out. It became common for sexual favours to be offered to men when getting a haircut and even checking into a hotel room. Young women would knock on your bedroom door and offer to keep you company. 
Anyway, point is, by the mid-1980s, the sex industry in Vietnam had grown to accommodate a demand. And by the late 80s, at least half of the male population were estimated to have had extramarital sexual relations with sex workers. Wow. Yeah. A phrase became common among the men. Rice, six days a week, and pho, which is like a noodle soup, on the seventh. That was basically their way of saying that a spicy liaison with a prostitute was a nice addition to the regular, more boring sex they were having with their wives. Popular excuses that they gave, according to one survey, was that Vietnamese men need and like to experience new and exotic things. How very unique to the Vietnamese man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Men need more sex than women. Ah, that old chestnut. Yeah, and I don't know what else to do with my money. (laughs) Wow. I don't know. What else am I supposed to do? I'm literally, I'm cinema. I don't know. Go to the theatre, patron of the arts. Nope. Anyway, so men's desire to spend that disposable income on women outside the home grew, and a new notion of masculine identity became tied to sexualized leisure. As this behavior became normalized, sex for pay started to demonstrate social mobility and social class. Men's ability to pay for food, drink, and prostitutes gave them a new sense of masculinity that was not available to earlier generations. Women were just being treated as objects through which men could prove their manliness. Office mates would boast about their weekend exploits. Bosses would take pride in having an affair with their attractive young secretary, taking her on business trips while the wife stayed at home with the children. Groups of men started socialising with one another, eating, drinking, and spending time with these pretty girls. Of course, not all men you know, were out looking Hashtag for sexual intercourse. <laughs> yeah. uh, but those who didn't do that still felt peer pressure from other men. You'd be questioned, you'd be mocked, you know, you're not a real man. And so, basically, the social risk of refusing to go with a prostitute outweighed the risks of participating. But what about the wives, Pete? Where are they in all this? Do we have to think about them or can we just get on with spending this money that's only got one way to spend it? (laughs) Exactly. Well, the underlying criteria for the government's happy family policy was that the success of a marriage was in terms of reproduction and economic stability, not in couple satisfaction. In fact, surveys show that the number one characteristic for a husband during this time was economic stability. Basically, if a man could provide for his family, he was fulfilling his moral obligations. Being faithful wasn't about sexual loyalty, it was about committing to financial responsibility. And if their husbands remained financially faithful, women would just accept their husbands' affairs. It would maintain the appearance of a happy family, and that was the wife's marital duty. That's not wildly different to many, I mean, you've mentioned the French earlier, there's always been a sense that the French wife has accepted that the husband will have a lover, haven't we? So it's not a uniquely Vietnamese thing, is it? No, it's not. But it is a result of Doi Moi. Okay, so in conclusion, Pete, the effects of Doi Moi in the late 80s on sex in Vietnam was huge. Decades after the promotion of the Happy Family campaign, the sex industry has changed the urban landscape and social dynamics. Prostitution remains illegal today, with Article 115 of Vietnam's Penal Code stating that any person who buys and sells women shall be sentenced to imprisonment for 5 to 20 years in prison. 
But in reality, that doesn't happen. Penalties are not so severe at all. When prostitutes are caught, usual fine is just 50,000 dong, which is about three US dollars. Okay. The government has issued a three reductions campaign, uh, which labels sex work as one of three evils in the country. But the truth is that the state no longer has control over these kinds of activities, and instead it just kind of turns a blind eye to it. If you tour downtown Hanoi today, you'll see men of different ages and backgrounds still looking for sex workers. Ironically, a well-known place to find prostitutes is right across the street from the Hanoi Women's Union. Could be the women's union in the sense of uh, fighting for better working conditions, I guess. Very true. And the growth of sex work in Vietnam since Doi Moi has seen a boom in sex tourism. International travellers coming to Vietnam looking for cheap and safe sex tours. And because there is a misconception that children pose less danger of HIV, there is an increased number of children entering prostitution. Organised networks are paying poverty-stricken families to give up their children and then taking those kids and other kids out of orphanages onto the streets of cities in Vietnam and abroad to brothels in Hong Kong, Macau and Southeast Asia. In Cambodia, for example, Vietnamese children make up one third of prostitutes. And sadly, the danger of the risk of HIV infection remains a major public health threat. It's estimated that 100 people are infected with HIV daily, and this shows no sign of slowing down. In 2020, Vietnamese police seized more than 320,000 used condoms that were due to be resold, stored in dozens of bags weighing up to 360 kilograms, 794 pounds. These used condoms were found in a warehouse during a raid by police. The owner was arrested and confirmed that the condoms were due to be washed, reshaped with wooden dildos, and then repackaged before being sold. Okay, two things. Number one, ah, and number two, normally when the police seize a big, um, large amount of drugs, they then have a picture of them with the seized property. I'm guessing they didn't do that in this case. Definitely didn't do that this time. <laughs> That's a lot. That is super gross. It's super, it's one of the worst things I've ever done. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, there is some good news, though, right? The organization that we spoke about earlier that Dr. Michael Free worked with in Vietnam during the 80s, remember PACT? They've rebranded. They're now known as PATH, P-A-T-H. And Somebody st- gave them a lesson in acronyms, didn't yes. they? <laughs> <laughs> and they're still working on the condom supply chain. They are working with local rubber farmers and factories to develop condom supplies, but they're also working with manufacturers, distributors, startups, entrepreneurs, online businesses, the mass media, and local communities to help build a sustainable supply and demand for condoms for those most at risk of HIV. And a number of charities have sprung up, like Alliance Anti-Traffic, AAT, who are working to protect women and children in Vietnam and across Southeast Asia from sexual exploitation and trafficking. So I encourage everybody out there to support their work by visiting allianceantitraffic.org. And that, Peter, is Sex in Vietnam during the late 1980s. Well, I would normally at this stage say thank you very much, Ryan, but given that the last image you left me with was of a pile of used confiscated condoms, I'm going to say thanks, Ryan, in a much more sarcastic way. But in truth, that was an excellent and fascinating episode, and I think you did a marvellous job. Thank you, Peter. I would like to thank Dr. Michael Free for his time and contribution towards this episode, and I would like to, again, point out that PATH is out there, and if you'd like to support PATH or Alliance Anti-Traffic, I'm sure they would encourage your contribution.
Okay, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about or you just want to say hello, reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com or email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you enjoyed today's show, if there are any historic episodes you think we might revisit, you might enjoy a remaster of, do reach out to us again through Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com, the website hhepodcast.com, or join us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, where you can find us at hhepodcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get a little alert every time we post some new content. Obviously, we'll be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan Weir. Thank you to you, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to History Happened Everywhere Out of Office Hey Pete Hey Ryan You're never going to believe this But somebody's stolen our idea for the podcast What, a random place, time and topic? Yeah, I'm seeing adverts for it everywhere Where? Let me see Alright, look, here Lonely Housewives, in your area, now. Ryan, that isn't a podcast. It's it's an advert for lonely men. No, no, it can't be, because they've got another episode called Sexy Milfs Across the UK Whenever You're Lonely. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. I probably shouldn't have subscribed, should I? No. Pete? Yeah? What's a milf? Da bitte da